John Stewart, who's the host of The Daily Show, I think probably all of you know that, he said that um, the closest he thought he would ever come to going to church was attending a Bruce Springsteen concert. <laughs> and uh, both John Stewart and myself grew up and were raised Jewish, and so I think I understand what he's, uh, what he's getting at. The way that I experienced Bruce Springsteen concert, as I did last Thursday night at the Wells Fargo Center, it's kind of like... Uh, that old tomato sauce had Prego, it's in there. It's in there. Like, you know, at a Bruce show, I feel like it's, it's all in there. All the heart, all the soul, all the spirit. Absolutely just love it. You know, the moment the, um, they started doing a version of uh, My City of Ruins, and they turned it into this tribute-laden memorial, and they brought up the spotlights on the place where Danny Federici used to, Play the organ and where Clarence Big Man Clevens used to blow his sacks and both those places were empty. The eyes got watery. So there's there's grief there. There's grief there to Bruce show. And when they did uh, Kitty's Back, any of you are real fans, you remember that from the wild, the innocent, the East, East Street Shuffle and a recorded version is about seven minutes long. The version they did in concert, I think, must have been anywhere between 12 and 15 minutes long. And by the end of it, my, my feet hurt from dancing so much, and my face hurt from smiling so much. So, you know, there's, there's joy at a Bruce Springsteen concert. And there's also more difficult things at a Bruce Springsteen concert as well, too. He brought back a song, not this last Thursday, but the night before Wednesday when I was not there, a song that he wrote over a decade ago. The song was called 41 Shots. And perhaps some of you remember it. It was written in honor of the memory of a young 23-year-old man, an African immigrant named Amadou Diallo, who was shot one night in the Bronx in 1999. He was taking his wallet out to try and show police officers his identification when they stopped him. And they assumed it was a gun or a knife. And in the space of just a few minutes, they fired over a hundred bullets at him. Forty-one hitting his body and ending his life. Now, when Bruce brought this song back this last Wednesday, he said just a couple words before it. And they said it in this way. He said, for Trayvon. Now, I'm going to assume that most of you know something about this story, the story of Trayvon Martin, shot by a man named George Zimmerman in the town of Sanford, Florida, on February 26. George Zimmerman, who to this day remains uncharged with the killing, manslaughter, murder, whatever it might be, of Trayvon Martin. Now, there is a lot we do not know. And there is a lot, I will admit, to not knowing about this case. That has not kept many people, however, in the media from speculating on it and adding a lot of fuel to the fire. I mean, uh, Spike Lee, who I think at one point used to direct movies, but now seems to be mostly a professional Knicks fan, which i got to tell you, if I could do that for a living, I love all this, but I wouldn't mind doing that. But Spike Lee and... I don't know, whatever mindset, decided that he would tweet 
the address of the person who he thought was George Zimmerman. It wasn't. And those people had to move out of their house because they were hounded by people calling and death threats and all kinds of really obscene stuff. So there has been this very negative energy around this very horrendous case. Well, and you see Trayvon Martin in a picture taken with him with the infamous hoodie that Geraldo Rivera, in an act of buffoonery that is as stupid as it is obscene, saying on Fox News that it is the hoodie that is as responsible for the death of Trayvon Martin as George Zimmerman's gun. More stupid fuel to a painful fire. And more details have started to come out and more details have started to come out in this past week, particularly if you've been following the case like I've been following this case. There was a video of George Zimmerman the night of the shooting the night that he says he shot Trayvon Martin in self-defense and pictures of him as he was brought back to the precinct for questioning, looking, and again, looking, appearances, appearances can be deceiving, but looking as if he was not assaulted, which would be his claim for self-defense. It did not appear he received any hospital treatment for the assault that he said he received from Trayvon Martin. And yes, there's even been some story, some backstory about Trayvon Martin. The Drudge Report, a website that I don't really like very much at all, has been mentioning Trayvon Martin's past very, very regularly. It turns out one of the reasons he was in Sanford, Florida, is he had just been suspended from school for marijuana use. By the way, if they were only going to uh, prosecute the murders or the killings of saints, most would go uncharged. And by the way, uh, you know who else got caught for um, smoking dope in, in high school? <laughs> Come on, I put that right on a tee for you. And thank you. I saw one other honest person in the back there as well, too. Same thing at 930. Thank you. All right. Good. Oh, woo, all right. OK. OK. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. I said at the 930, I saw a lot more eyebrows raised than hands, you know. It has no uh, it has no compelling nature in this in this horrendous story that he was suspended from high school for the suspicion that he was smoking marijuana. I mean, actually, I didn't get suspended. They just found me with a bunch of my other 16 year old friends at the Model UN in the old you uh, old uh, Pennsylvania Hotel on 33rd Street. That place used to be a complete pit and we were having a party. And we were smoking and we were drinking and it was the only way we could get girls to come to our room. And so then security came to our room. And I, I'm not proud of any of this, by the way. Please do not do as I do. Just laugh at me, not with me. Um, but then seemingly somehow the chain of evidence got lost by the time we came back here to the Hill School where I was going to boarding school. And I didn't get suspended, but I should have. And actually, it probably would have helped me. But the fact that he was suspended has absolutely no bearing on the fact that he is dead. As yet, George Zimmerman remains uncharged. But there are some things we do know and can absolutely affirm. When George Zimmerman called 911 and was talking with the dispatcher and was describing how he was following, actually, I believe in his car, tracking would be a better way to refer to it, tracking Trayvon Martin, 
the dispatcher said, you don't need to do that. And he continued it anyway, armed and loaded. The second thing that we know, also from the tape, is that he said, Trayvon Martin looked suspicious. Now, from everything that I have read, I do not know what Trayvon Martin was doing that made him appear suspicious. And so my question, and again, I cannot peer into George Zimmerman's heart, but my question is this. If he was doing nothing suspicious, what made him appear suspicious? An unarmed 17-year-old boy carrying nothing more than Skittles and iced tea. Zimmerman carrying a loaded weapon. On what grounds was he suspicious? Perhaps it was this. Not this color, not my color. His color. Because of the color of the skin of my body, I do not know what it is like to be automatically suspicious in the eyes of many people. Other people have told me that they dislike me because of the color of my skin. Everyone has prejudice or bias. But there is a difference between individual prejudice and bias and systemic or institutionalized racism. I don't know what it's like to be immediately suspect. Every African-American friend that I've ever had have told me their stories of what it is like to be immediately suspect because of the color of their skin in this society. I mean, even this up here, you know, until I started uh, taking a look, uh, doing this message for today, I had had this up here, all the other previous messages in this series, Body Positive Spirituality. I put it up there, kind of a benign thing. It's from my mindfulness app that I use almost every single day. And I say, you know, when I put it up there, check in, check in with the body, check in with the breath. And I looked at it as I was preparing for today. I said, you know what? That figure's white. When you're white, you don't often notice how often other things are white. <laughs> That's the nature of privilege. It's the nature of privilege that comes with being a white person. Now, by the way, I know the person who did this mindfulness app, and they're the furthest thing from a racist in their life. I'm just pointing it out as a little example. Mindfulness, and one of the reasons that I do practice mindfulness, is that it has absolutely nothing to do with a kind of airy-fairy desire to transcend all of our human beingness, all of our desire to get far, far away, high, high and above the difficulties of what it is to be human. In fact, it works the other way. Down and in and here and now in a body, with a body, alongside other bodies. Mindfulness is very often understood as part of the larger contemplative practices of both East and Western traditions. And there's a guy named Rowan Williams who will soon be the outgoing uh, Archbishop of the Anglican Communion. America, we know it as the Episcopal Church. And Rowan Williams wrote a number of years ago about contemplative traditions and contemplative practice and what they can help us do in terms of really getting in touch with the reality of our lives, not some abstraction, but the reality of our lives, including our bodies. And this is what Archbishop Williams said. Contemplation is a deeper 
apprehension, deeper comprehension of the vulnerability of the self in the midst of the many transactions of our world. Contemplation identifies the real damaging pathologies of human life. And underline this next part, please. Our violent obsessions with privilege and achievement and control. And that these things arise from the refusal to know and to love oneself as a creature. As an actual body. A vulnerable body. This is contemplation not as abstraction, but as getting in touch with the essential quality, especially for a truly body-positive spirituality of the fact that we have a body and it's not incidental and it's not accidental if we are going to grow in this life. If we can learn to open up to this kind of vulnerability, I am mortal, you are mortal, we are all mortal. Yes, we are strong, but we also are profoundly weak in some ways. And if we can open up to that, then perhaps we will touch that deeper sense of compassion that may unite all of our lives together. This is what a body positive spirituality means to be in touch and to be connected in the most fundamental and profound ways. I want to share an example with you about today. Now, I did not grow up in a Christian tradition, and so I don't have any homegrown understandings of Palm Sunday. Now, how many of you did grow up in a tradition that celebrated Palm Sunday? Okay, that's, that's a fair amount of you. Um, so I won't go into too much of the backstory, but Palm Sunday is the day that it was, um, as the Gospels tell it, Jesus rode into Jerusalem ready to be received by his followers as someone who would help to reestablish the royal reign, the lineage of David, the lineage of King David, of the Messiah that he was assumed to be a part of. Well, they laid down palm fronds and other trees and and received him as a hero, almost as you would as a conquering hero, come back to claim what is rightfully his. Celebrated on Sunday, mocked and condemned to death by Friday. An interesting week. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why is that important? Because donkeys were understood to be in the ancient Near East, the kindest, most loyal, not terribly bright form of horse that they could find. You see, a king... A king who meant to make war and claim territory, claim what was rightfully his, would ride into town on a horse, proud and upright. Jesus chose to come in on a little humble donkey. It projects an image of a very different kind of power, a very different kind of reign. See, there's two choices in so many traditions, and especially within Christianity, as I've come to understand it, between, on the one hand, the royal tradition, the, the, the part that speaks to power over other people, religious law and order, if you will, and then there's a whole other tradition, the loving-kindness tradition, the Hebrew word that Jesus would have known, chesed, speaking an eternal kind of loving-kindness that is open to all and a part of each. The royal understanding of Jesus, even after his death, is expressed so often in the kind of power as what's known as atonement theology. 
Maybe some of you have heard that before, atonement theology. I disagree about as profoundly with this as I do with any other theological idea because I cannot stand what it says about God and I cannot stand what it says about humanity. It says that we learn most profoundly through punishment and violence. That because we are such horrendous, reprobate sinners, atonement theology says Jesus had to pay the price for how awful we were. I disagree with that on so many levels, but this is the most profound level at which I disagree with it. In 2,000 years, it hasn't worked. It simply hasn't worked. Blood to get rid of blood has not worked. Violence to get rid of violence has not worked. I mean, that great Christmas hymn, it came upon a midnight clear written by a Unitarian fighting in a quote-unquote good war. And I do believe it was a necessary war, but it was still war and it was still awful. World War II. Writing in the trenches, it came upon a midnight clear said, In 2,000 years of wrong, we have not been able to hear the love song that the angels bring because of all of our war and all of our strife. Atonement theology does simply not work. I thought a lot about the image of Dirty Harry the last few weeks. George Zimmerman, maybe this is an image that George Zimmerman had internalized, that he was the one who could uphold the law. He, the solitary man man with his solitary gun and his solitary power, he was the one who would put down those who threatened him. Well, Clint Eastwood gave rise to Dirty Harry, as we all know. And Clint Eastwood has spent about the last two decades of his life rethinking what Dirty Harry is all about as he has matured as a human being and has matured as a man. Clint Eastwood directed the most powerful critique of atonement theology, of violence bringing forth order from more violence, of blood bringing forth justice from more blood, directed the most powerful critique of that I've ever seen. Have you seen Mystic River? Maybe not all of you have. It is despairing and depressing and to me the logical end of any atonement theology. It is the story of a horrendous crime that begets more horrendous crime in the name of vigilance and vigilantism and justice at the end of a gun. I don't think Jesus believed or practiced the kingly power kind of theology. I believe that he was very familiar with the chesed, loving kindness theology. Loving kindness which engages our moral imagination to see other people as kindred to us. This prophetic tradition that Jesus was a part of and would have known sees that Whatever, by whatever names we may call it, there is an essential unity at the heart of each of our lives. And when we hunger for it, we can draw power from it. And the power that we can draw from it is the power to help and to heal, not to hurt and to harm. Last week when I was talking about hunger and getting in touch with the core of us, talking about the image that the prophets use, the ancient Israelite prophets, when they talk about hungering for justice and hungering for peace and hungering for righteousness, that is the most profound found hunger in so many ways because it spreads beyond just our own individual bodies. It takes us out into the lives of others as a force for healing. In last week's message, I also referenced the Hunger Games. Now, I haven't seen 
the movie yet because so many of you, and actually some people literally in this room today, have told me I have to read the books first. And so I've just started reading the first uh, Hunger Books. Is it trilogy, right? It's trilogy? Okay, good. I, I, I deal right with trilogies. Once we start to get to seven, eight, nine, ten, I start to lose interest. But Hunger Games, you know, it's a story... Yes, in, in, in a dystopia, in a world post-apocalyptic, but it's a story of teens trying to survive in a violent world, in a dehumanizing context. And that's what brings it all back home for me to the story of Trayvon Martin. Did he think he was being hunted that night? Did he believe that he was being targeted simply as others have called it, because he was walking while black. Now, as a universalist, I also believe my faith and our faith calls us to have compassion or at least some kind of meaningful connection, even with George Zimmerman. His life has a reality, too. I do have to admit that I've seen him as something of a symbol, like Dirty Harry, it's brought to mind for me one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite bands, a punk band from the 1980s, The Minutemen. I don't know how many of you remember them. Awesome. Well, they've got a song that I think speaks to part of this reality. It's called Little Man with a Gun in His Hand. Little Man with a Gun in His Hand. It's not about stature and size. Actually, George Zimmerman's kind of a stout fellow. Little Man with a Gun in His Hand. Little in terms of you know narrow or fragile ego trying to establish his power or empower himself in the damaging and violent ways of thinking that somehow if he has a gun, he has justice or rightness on his side as well, too. And this is something we don't hear very much about, and I wish we'd hear more about it. You know, we hear George Zimmerman referred to as a neighborhood watch captain. If he was a captain, he appears to be captain of a ship upon, he was, upon which he was the only one sailing. George Zimmerman took a two-week course through the Sanford PD that deputized him to do absolutely nothing. And he was known for someone who would regularly call in all kinds of suspicious people in his neighborhood. When I think of a true neighborhood watch, I think of something like, you know, whether they do any help or not, I don't know. But I think of something like the Guardian Angels who patrol together and unarmed who call in to the police when they see something going wrong and who are smart enough to stand down when they are told by the dispatcher, you don't need to do that. I see Zimmerman all on his own, with his own fears and his own perceptions and his own suspicions, not balanced out by anyone else asking him any questions. And of course, with the power of his own gun. This past week, I read a great quote from Prince Charles, who I absolutely love that we live in a world in which Prince Charles has absolutely no power to do anything other than make slightly, well, meaningfully insightful comments like this one. And it gets to the heart of a lot of what I've been talking about in this series, Body Positive Spirituality. He talks about saying, talking about how the state of our health reflects the food we eat and the water we drink and where we live and all these things that go into our housing, our sanitation. And then he goes on to say this, and I this to me is key. I believe our health also extends to our social needs and our social circumstances. The need to belong to a community. 
the need for meaningful work and daily purpose, the need in our lives for dignity and for kindness, for self-respect and for hope, and above all, for harmony. Zimmerman had power, all right. George Zimmerman had power. His gun, his temperament, his power, which is a devastating power, to take a 17-year-old boy's life. That is irrevocable. There is no way to undo that. And I especially ask those of you who are parents to think about if Trayvon Martin was your son and think about where you would put your energies. I'm not a parent. I'd still try and think about that. This is why, for me, the opposite of the atonement theology, royal power, is always loving kindness. And loving kindness always draws us back to bodies. Loving kindness never exists in the abstract, never exists as merely an idea. For those of you who have done metta meditation, loving kindness meditation in the Buddhist tradition, you know that the the phrases, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live in ease, it first starts with our own physical body, our own physical presence right here and right now just as we are. And then it extends to someone who we care about. And then it extends to someone we're indifferent to. And then it extends to someone we can't stand their body as well too there is no mature spiritual path that does not bring us back to the reality of each other's bodies and it is bigger than buddhism it is bigger than christianity and it is bigger than unitarian universalism i think it is the essence of universalism because we are all mortal and we are all fragile and we are all vulnerable And unless and until we awaken to that, I'm not sure how much progress we can really make in this life. This limitless quality of our loving kindness and our compassion for each other. Truly a universal aspiration. John Murray was the first universalist preacher in America. Found his way over here from England, from a life in the debtor's prison, a life of despair. And he found a new life here. And in it, he found a love that excelled any tradition and was a part of each and belonged to all of us. His most famous articulation went this way. He encouraged his followers to go out, go out into life, go out into the highways and the byways, he said, and bring more light and more understanding to the hearts and minds of men and women. Not some abstraction, men and women, people. He said, give them not hell. Give them not hell. And to just interject my own sense here, they probably have enough of it already anyway. Give them not hell, but hope and courage. Do not push them deeper into their theological despair, but instead preach the kindness and everlasting love of God. There's only one thing I'd want to change about that that John Murray said. Preaching's easy. (laughs) Practice. The loving kindness, that which is everlasting, infinite, internal, eternal, limitless. Practice that. Practice that. I think that's the best thing any of us can do as we seek to deepen our lives. 
know that as we look at another person and choose not to look past them, if we can see them with eyes of loving kindness and with eyes of compassion, then we have already participated in what the ancient Hebrews called this, tikkun ha'ulam, the healing of our world. It certainly needs it, and I believe we do as well. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Divine of so many names, and certainly one of those is this, chesed, the loving kindness essence. May we cultivate the potential within each of us of that reality. Just as the seed planted in the ground is nourished and nurtured into fullness of being, may we give our affirmation, our most profound yes, to being healers of our own hearts, our own bodies, our own spirits, and in that bring that same healing and interaction to everyone whom we would encounter. Today, though, to be less grand. And to be more real. There are these bodies all around us. There is this body we have. May we meet this and treat those with loving kindness. Amen.